Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Jeff Lorber. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, the podcast that sheds new light on the world of music. That means that we peel back the obvious and let you see music from the inside out. I'm Eddie Cabello. And I'm Rick Such. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Inside Music Cast. As Eddie mentioned, Inside Music Cast will take you inside the mind of the musician and allow you to get a special, up-close glimpse of the music-making process. So if you're a fan or even a musician, this is where you want to be. That's right. This is the podcast that takes you beyond the stage and into the studio and features the people that make music happen. So if you're ready, let's get started. If he were being accused of being too creative and trying too many new things, Jeff Lorber would have to plead guilty. You see, when it comes down to creating music that's fresh and groundbreaking, Jeff Lorber feels right at home. Over 30 years after the R&B jazz fusion pioneer shook up the music world with his group, the Jeff Lorber Fusion, the Philly-born keyboardist has managed to stay on the track of musical imagination to deliver over 20 jazz fusion adventurous albums that have impacted the musical world around him. His stylish new album, He Had a Hat, includes a touch of gospel, fusion, and smooth jazz styles while throwing in some bebop and swing on the side. Guest musicians on the album require no introduction. Abe LaBroyal Jr., Kirk Whalem, Paul Jackson Jr., Lenny Castro, Vinnie Caliuta, Dave Weckl, Randy Brecker, Gerald Albright, Tom Scott, Brian Bromberg, Hubert Laws, and Chris Bodie. We highly recommend this new project because, quite simply, it has Grammy written all over it. Jeff Lorber is at his absolute best at every turn. Inside Music Cast is honored to welcome an absolute legend in jazz and fusion, Jeff Lorber. Hey, Jeff, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. <laughs> Good to have you. Here oh, in uh, hot Indianapolis. Oh, man, it's I'm, hot here. <laughs> I, came, I came to your hometown here. <laughs> hey, I want to start off in, uh, in, in letting you know that in our years of enjoying music and, and doing interviews uh, with, with wonderful guests, um, we've never really quite had the privilege of, uh, of, of chatting with someone who has been credited in pioneering a genre single-handedly. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but that's you, of course. And I think, uh, but, you, but you want to know what's funny about that is, that is how it is completely erroneous because <laughs> I just happened to call my band the Jeff Lorber Fusion. We were a local band playing around Portland, Oregon. Yeah. And I just called it that just to kind of let people know, hey, this is what we're doing. We're doing fusion music. If you like it, come on, check us out. And if you don't, you know, you might want to stay away, you know, just kind of like a warning label almost. <laughs> and uh, because I call, called the, the band the Jeff Lorber Fusion, it sort of caught on a little bit. Um, and I had that name. Mm-hmm. I get called the father of fusion music, and, I'm, and, and I, I really wasn't. I mean, bef- by the time I started my band, there was yeah. so much great fusion music out there. I mean, I was just sort of – I was sort of uh, the beginning of a second generation. Right. The first generation was Miles Davis, right. Return to Forever, Tony Williams, uh, you know, Weather Report. I mean, there was, you know, tons of great, great music being made, uh, all the CTI stuff, all the great music coming out of San Francisco out of fantasy with uh, – you know, the early Patrice Russian records and George right. Duke and all that stuff. I mean, there were so many people making fusion records. And then uh, I guess that was the early 70s. And mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, I made my first record in 75. It didn't come out until 76. And it right. didn't really catch on until 1980. There was like a second generation that was, um, yeah. you know, more like uh, the early Spyro Gyra, right. Pat Metheny and stuff exactly. like that. So has this, quote unquote, father uh, of fusion uh, label has that sort of uh, represented uh, you accurately as to what you've tried to accomplish in your career over the years or is this well, it's a, funny. a dubious award type yeah of thing? it's it's funny because now um 
You know, I went through quite a, you know, a journey that like a lot of people go through when they record numerous albums right. um, over time. And, uh, you know, one of the things that happened, I was working with Clive Davis. He signed me to Arista and he suggested that, hey, you really need to get into this R&B stuff, vocal stuff. You know, we're not selling this instrumental. He, it's funny because he started out as such a um, supporter of mm-hmm. instrumental music. You know, he fostered the early GRP records. Sure, right. He signed um, the Brecker Brothers and Harvey Mason. And there, were, there was so much great music coming out of the early Arista records, which right. is why I wanted to sign with them. I actually, at that point, I actually had the option to sign with a couple labels at that point because hmm. uh, my first two records were pretty successful with Inner City. But, uh, yeah, he just sort of faded away. And, and um, I guess now, you know, he pretty much doesn't support jazz at all, unfortunately, which is, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to see. Um, but anyway, I kind of took that detour where, you know, I had Karen White in my band. I was doing mm-hmm. vocal music. We actually had a, a big pop hit with that record. But in, in retrospect, I think that was, um, was kind of bad for my career. You know, it's sort of it's, I sort of lost my base and I kind of mm. got away from what I started doing, which which was much more meaningful to me musically. Yeah. And even the smooth jazz thing is kind of getting away yeah. from where I started and um, and what I really want to do. Like this new record is much more of a fusion record. Right. Um, so so it's so, sort of ironic that now I kind of feel like uh, where I really want to be musically it is more into. Uh, something that would be classified right. as, as fusion music. So is this descriptor of when people say, well, Jeff Lorber sort of sounds like R&B, sounds like jazz, sounds like fusion, sounds sort of a hybrid. I mean, uh, I mean, have you – I mean, why do people have such problems in trying to describe your music? Well, there's, you know, there's two things. There's, there's musicians making music um, and then there's marketing. Right. So when you market something, you have to be – you have to give it a name. You have it have to identify it very specifically to kind of let people know what it is. Right. And musicians, when they go and play, they don't. They're not really thinking that way. They're just kind of having fun. They can Good combine point, all those elements in whatever way they feel. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, in, in in reference to your earlier question about how do I feel about being called the father of fusion? I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I'm honored. You know, I mean. Uh, I mean that's that's quite a compliment. Right, I mean sure. I don't I don't think it's 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 accurate, but you know I'll take it if uh, if somebody wants to give it to me. And um, <laughs> I mean it's, it's I mean it's hard to make a living in this business. I'm sure you you know, and it's pretty obvious. And and as time goes on, it seems to be you know more and more difficult in in certain respects, the record business aspects, right? Particularly. So um so basically I'm um. You know, that's that's. I, I love making music, and sure. I love uh, making my own music, working on other people's records, por- performing. I love the whole gamut of of different things that I that I'm very yeah. fortunate to get to do. So, um, you know, so that's basically it. Cool. If, if I can get some publicity and some notoriety by being called that, that's that's okay with me. Such as on Inside Music Cast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, hey, congratulations on your re- recent release. Uh, he had a hat on, on Blue Thank Note you. Records, right? And uh, it's it's a it's a fantastic uh, album. I, I've listened to it, you know, many many times, and I just it, you know it's, it is a nice mix of of you know so many different styles and sounds. And you know, hearing Paula Cole, I mean, she's she's mm-hmm. one of my favorite singers. I just I just love that track. But you know, something changed a- along the way to you know deliver this album. And and while you maintain the groove, you also added you know more unexpected variety to the mix. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, talk to us a little bit about about that. Yeah. Well, I you know uh, a few years ago I made a record called um, Midnight, and it was it was a record that I wrote everything, I produced it, and you know in retrospect, I mean I think it has some good music, 
Yeah. Um, but it's probably not one of my strongest records that I've made. And at that point, after the the relative failure of that record, that's sort of when I realized I I really enjoy collaborating with people when I when I write and when I produce records. That I don't want to produce myself. I don't want to write it myself. Um, that I have my sort of world of the way I look at things musically. And when I collaborate with somebody, they have their world. And then you put those two worlds together, you get a much bigger universe of ideas right. to choose from. And um, so I made three records with um, with Steve Dubin, who, uh, you know, is a very talented guy. And his um, talents complemented mine well, because he's more of a drum programmer. I'm more of a melody harmony guy. He's more of a mm-hmm. concept guy and a, and a rhythm guy. So uh, it was fun to make those records. And uh, Bobby Columbia is a guy I've, I've known about for, for years. Uh, way before I ever met him, I was a huge fan of uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears. Oh, yeah. When I was, um, I think I was about like 13 or 14, I was, I was very lucky growing up in Philadelphia. There was this club called the Electric Factory. Mm-hmm. And I used to go down there all the time. I saw Blood, Sweat and Tears when David Clayton Thomas had just jo- joined the band. Sure. Uh, I saw the early Pink Floyd when on one of their first trips over to play in America. The same thing with the Who. I mean, I got to see some incredible music. I, I actually was uh, went to Woodstock when I was fourteen. I was in. I was there for that. <laughs> wow! So I've, I've been. Needless to say, I've been a big music fan for my whole life. But um, yeah, but, but the story of this record is basically the collaboration with with Bobby, who's got a very rich history of um, you know being in Blood, Sweat, and Tears, producing the Jocko album, which is one of the sure. you know landmark certainly bass player records but perhaps jazz records period you know yeah. it's just such a incredible album and, and recently you know ha- having tremendous success with chris Bode and sort of reinventing his career i oh, mean yeah. that the story of chris Bode is sort of the um it's it's the biggest success story in instrumental right. music since Absolutely. kenny g basically yeah yeah so, and that and that's very and 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 Bobby's extremely responsible for that. I mean, Chris also deserves a, a ton of credit, too, because he's super focused and he's mm-hmm. a great musician. And, and he really has, um, you know, he's got a vision for what he wants to do. And, and he's a unique guy. And I, I totally respect him. But Bob, anyway, so it was it was great to work with Bobby. Bobby. Bobby's big influence on this record was that he sort of insisted that every song have some really interesting and unusual chord changes mm-hmm. at, at the heart of the, of the songs. And, you know, he he wasn't going to go for any, like, simple one-chord grooves or two-chord grooves like most guys do in smooth jazz. He wanted right. every song to really harmonically be, um, you know, very ambitious and very interesting. So even though there's bebop songs on there, there's uh, there's ballads, there's, you know, there's a wide variety of music. But that's the one thing that, that is there mm-hmm. on, on the whole record. And, and really the way I look at this album was sort of like the way the Beatles made their white album. They pulled out all the stops. They they had it was a double album with every you know the whole kitchen sink pulled in you know thrown in and just an amazing um monument to their creative genius i'm a huge beatles fan right. as you can probably tell but anyway <laughs> but that was sort of how we approached this record we wrote 20 songs we produced 20 songs and we picked the best and uh, you know we had incredible uh musicians um collaborating brian bromberg vinnie caliuta abla boreal you know, Hubert Laws, sure. Kirk Whalum, Gerald Albright. I mean, we, you know, and it, it was funny because I'd sit around with Bobby and, and, I'd, and I'd say to Bobby, man, you really got to check out Kirk Whalum or, or Gerald <laughs> Albright. You know, I, I work with those guys all the time. They're really great. And, oh, yeah, I haven't heard of them. I, I heard they're good. And he says, well, you got to check out this, this buddy of mine, Jeremy Lubbock. And he'd get Jeremy to come in and help out. 
And, uh, and of course, there were people that we both knew in common, like Brian, who, um, right. you know, actually, I have to admit, as far as Brian goes, he sort of hired me a little bit more than I've hired him in the past. So it was great to be able to sort of return the favor <laughs> and have him contribute. I, I, I really never... Um, I never really heard having acoustic bass on my album play such a big role, but it was great to sort of right. move more in that direction. There's a lot of acoustic bass, and uh, you know Brian contributed tremendously. It was great to have Vinny, who who I've never recorded with, who I've been, yeah, he's, he's been a huge fan of. Yeah, he's amazing. Actually, Brian and Vinny and I used to play around town. We had a little band back in, um, I guess it was like the earlier mid '90s, and we used to play right. around town uh, just for fun. But um, well, if you stand back from this project, and uh-huh. you know, you know, considering all the all the the heavyweights you had, and and the type of music that that you sort of compiled together, it it still ended up very sophisticated. And 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 I want I'd like you to talk to us a little bit about the territory in the styles of music. I mean, you know, you actually incorporated, I believe, a, even a gospel tune. Right. There. That's right. Who wrote that song? Oh, my goodness. Bill Withers? Yeah, it was a Bill Withers yeah. song, wasn't it? Yeah, Grandma's yeah. Hand. Sure. Grandma's Hand. It, Absolutely. It's awesome. So you have some gospel there. You have Well, the thing that was know, funny swing. about that was I actually had I had written a song, and I played it for Bobby. And he said, hey, that sounds like Grandma's Hand. I mean, basically, it really it didn't sound anything like Grandma's Hand. <laughs> Plagiarism. <laughs> like like if, you, if you listen to the, our version of Grandma's Hands, harmonically, it has nothing to do with the Bill Werther's version. Uh-huh. It's basically a, a sort of gospel-y chord progression okay. that has the Grandma's Hands melody superimposed on it. Right. But um, – So it sort of haunts the song a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, – you know, I, when he said that, I mean, I, I'm a huge Bill Withers fan. I mean, Bill Withers is, you know, his his, uh, you know, his songwriting is just mm-hmm. un, unreal. It's mm-hmm. like so meaningful and so powerful and stands the test of time. Yeah. So, you know, I, w- I was when he sort of pointed that out that you could sort of superimpose the Grandma's Hands melody on this. Wow. And and then at the same time, it was it was sort of uh, very fortunate because he was hiring Eric Benet to sing on. Chris Bode's Christmas record. It was just mm-hmm. was like happening like the next week or something like that. Right. And so we actually went into the studio. He was like recording this thing with Chris Bode. And then he sprung it on him without even giving him any warning. And say, <laughs> hey, while you're here, um, Jeff's got this song. And he wants you to sing on it. Grandma's hands. What do you think? <laughs> you sure. And, um, <laughs> Why and not? well, I've, I've been friends with Eric for a long time. We know each other. So, um, right. yeah. So he was, you know, I... I Honestly, the thing that he did for Chris was was some kind of you know Bing Crosby esque or Frank Sinatra esque standard sure, sure, or something. Sure. When right. when he had the chance to actually do something that was like a little bit more down his alley, mm-hmm. you know, to actually sing the blues, he was thrilled to do it. And um, but he he actually had to sit down there and you know sort of listen to the song and we wrote down the lyrics together and he just it was just very sort of quickly put together and he sang all those harmonies too. I mean the harmonies are unbelievable. It's like 20, 20 yeah. tracks. Yeah, he's, absolutely. It's wonderful. The last two albums that you recorded were on Narada, right? And uh, this new uh, record is on Blue Note. Mm-hmm. Um, driving forces for that change? What? Uh, well, anything? you know, Narada was an EMI company, okay. and they were um, absorbed by the Blue Note group. They were sort of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the in the pr- never ending process of consolidation <laughs> that uh, the record business goes through. And we were already in the middle of working on this record. We were actually really, really lucky to, to uh, that Blue Note sort of wanted to put their label on it. You know, uh, Bobby knows Bruce Lundvall pretty well, who's the president of Blue Note. And sure. Bruce Lundvall, I, I mean, Bobby told Bruce at an early point of, in time that he, he'd like this to come out on Blue Note. I mean, obviously, the difference between coming out on Narada and coming 
out on Blue Note is yeah. kind of like the difference between if you're like a clothing manufacturer of saying like Prada or saying the Gap. You know, it's kind of like <laughs> like it's like something like that. Right. So uh, anyway, the last it was sort of a last minute change, and um, you know we were we were delighted that they you know felt positively enough about the, the record to uh, put their their label on it. Absolutely. In our uh, intro, we mentioned the roster, you know, of great musicians that uh, that you included in, in the making of this new album. Uh-huh. Uh, he had a hat, and I want to mention a few. And as I mention them, uh, tell me a little about their contribution. Sure. You know, maybe even something interesting that might have happened in the studio or right. during okay. the recording or something. And the first is one of my favorite drummers, and that's Abel Broyle Jr. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I because um, ever since I heard him play with Paul McCartney. And, I, and of course, I've heard about him. I've heard about his reputation for years. Uh, I think he used to play at um, the Big Potato with Mike Landau, and I've heard I've heard about you know what he's been doing. But I actually tried to get him to play on my last couple of records. I he was too busy, and we were really glad to uh, to get him on this one. And he's he's just an amazing guy. He's very very musical. He even though he's young, he seems. Like he has musical wisdom that's way, way beyond his years. Exactly. And uh, one thing that really impressed me about it, well, there are a couple things. First of all, I love the fact that he only used one Tom Tom. Mm-hmm. And it is his drum set was mm-hmm. was super simple. I, I really I really kind of dig that. That's sort of like an, a modern style right. that I that Simplicity. I appreciate. And and I also was impressed that he was real interested to see the chart. And I could just actually see that when he looked at the chart, he was reading it like he was checking out all the all the chords and all the harmony. Interesting. And um, you know, he definitely relates to you know he he's not just a drummer. He's definitely a musician that understands. The you know what's going on with the harmonic chord progression. I think he plays to that, mm-hmm. and uh, the the one song in particular that that Alex and um, Abe really sort of added something that we ha- had t- totally unexpected and totally great was the song Hudson, because mm-hmm. we actually had like pretty good demos on everything. In fact, Bobby Columbia, the producer, actually yeah. played drums on all of our demos. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He only played drums for Blood Sweat and Tears. Exactly. Right. He's a drummer. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's very out of practice. I got to tell you, like okay. he, like normally <laughs> when, when we when we uh, when I have him play on stuff, I'd have him like play through something, and usually there'd be like one bar that would sound really great, and I just take that and copy it everywhere. <laughs> and he would never know it. <laughs> yeah, go back just grab it. that bar. But um, but no, he still has the touch, and he's got the feel, and uh, you know, especially when it comes to real jazzy stuff. I mean, he definitely. Um, you know, still has that. I, I actually kind of hire him to play, usually not a drum set, but maybe like cymbal overdubs or on, on different things that I work on because mm-hmm. I like I like his feel. But uh, yeah, anyway, but when those guys started playing Hudson, they added like an extra level of funk and syncopation that was way beyond what we had mm-hmm. uh, on the demo. And they so that's that's what really turned that song into something special that I love to love to play live. I mean, that's one thing about this album compared to a lot of other albums I've made is that there's a bunch of tunes on this album that I've been playing live. It's just been so much fun to play live. I mean, the, the last album, the Flipside album, was sort of a, the opposite kind of record where, I mean, there's, there's cool songs on there, but it's not, it's sort of more made for listening, for just sort of like it's kind of more textural mm-hmm. and like a soundscape. It's not really about the chord changes and it's not yeah. really about the improvisation. It's definitely not about the well, interplay like the mood, of the musician. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a mood, yeah. And um, which, by the way, it d- that record did great. Yeah. It got a Grammy nomination. And um, honestly, I have to say, I had much more fun making the two previous records with Steve Dubin. Hmm. Um, by, by the time we got around to making this record, we didn't, 
like go into the studio with a rhythm section like we did on the other albums. And so because of that, it was sort of, I don't know, when you go in with a rhythm section, you cut a basic track. A lot of times you get the energy from that basic track and that's it. Like that's all you need. And then you just kind of add a couple little things and bam, you got the record. But when you make a record piece by piece where you're kind of adding the drums and the bass and, and then you have two guys that all, that both have like their own, (laughs) like, like we, we got into one, I got into a thing with Steve that, that was, it was kind of unfortunate from the standpoint that he's got a studio with Pro Tools. I got a studio with Pro Tools. So he'd go home and he'd do all this work to the music and so would I and we'd come back and we'd have two completely <laughs> different versions, versions of, the of the song. So then we'd have to have like a fight to see whose like overdubs were going to win. That's funny. <laughs> so that's not the best way to make a record right. to be honest. Oh, the next next musician I wanted to ask you about yeah. is uh, Kirk Whalem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Super soulful guy. Uh, I've known him for, for a long time because he used to open up for us like back in the early 80s when we used to play in uh, Houston and Dallas. Hmm. And um, I've had a chance to I, – I, I've had a chance to tour with him for a few years. Uh, we did this thing called Groovin' for Grover where Gerald Albright and Kirk uh, were both playing – you know Grover tunes, and I was sure. I was with them out there doing that. So I've I've had a chance to get to know him, and you know I I kind of consider him to be uh, probably the most soulful uh, and definitely one of the best tenor players on the scene today. You know, mm-hmm. Texas is famous for tenor players, but uh, Wilton Felder. I'm you know I've always been a big fan of his. You know when I started my band, that was like one of the sounds that yeah. really sort of made a huge impression on me was the sound of the crusaders and and the sound and the the role of wilton in that band yeah right. it always sort of was kind of an archetype for me about like this is what a saxophone is supposed to be in an ensemble as wilton felder and yeah. when i listen to uh, kirk it kind of reminds me of that a little bit i've got a few more names here okay. but I'll, just, I'll just throw out one more and it's randy brecker yeah well rand the the thing that's funny about randy is we both went to the same high school we both went to oh, cheltenham yeah. high school in uh in in this is like a northern Jewish ghetto of Philadelphia called Cheltenham. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Reggie Jackson actually went to that high school, too. Really? He was a, he was a football star there. Holy cow. But uh, as, as is often the case, uh, even when he was in high school, he was legendary. Like, there was, you know, people were talking about him. His dad was a pretty accomplished uh, piano player, hmm. Randy's dad, and was a band leader and used to play around town. So they already had a name based on that. But yeah, but that was like the first thing about calling up uh, Randy Brecker is I told him I wanted to get the Cheltenham High School discount uh, uh, for his uh, services on this record. <laughs> Didn't work, did it? No, it did actually. It, it, yeah. it was it was cool. Um, and um, but anyway, yeah. But that, this was one of those long distance sort of things where I had to send him the track, and he sort of did it at a, at his pad in New York, which I don't. Incidentally, I I I don't like to I don't love to do that, but it does mm-hmm. work. And uh, you know he pl- he played beautifully on, on this record and and of course that song surreptitious it's so perfect for him yeah. because it has yeah. almost a little of that mm-hmm. and he actually did come up there's this section toward the end of the song that i call the brecker brothers section because they came up with this real syncopated horn line thing that's fantastic and uh, you know so it was a it was a real pleasure to uh, to work with them i actually met him um working with brian brian hired the two of us to tour with them last year so we mm-hmm. did some touring together yeah, Bromberg, yeah. You know, so hopefully I'm going to get a chance to work with him some more in the future. I want to pull out one track that was sort of very amazing. You, it's actually the first cut, "Anthem for America." Mm-hmm. Is there any personal motivation as to the writing or the title or whatever? Yeah. I mean, it's it's such a, an incredible, moving entrance into the project uh-huh. that, in a way, it doesn't parallel the rest of it, mm-hmm. but it opens the door in a very amazing platform of of richness and elegance and I'm thinking wow I didn't even when I first put on the CD 
it took me for a loop. Well, it's, it's, it's funny you should mention that because it, it took me a long time to warm up to it. I mean, I almost – I was sort of like reluctant to even put it on the record because, I mean, now now that – you know, months later, now that I've, I'm playing it live, now I'm starting to really, really explore what that song is and what it means and how to really dig mm-hmm, into it mm-hmm, musically. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was sort of one of the things that Bobby really um, sort of inspired me to do. I, I have this um, – gold record from a Bruce Hornsby record that I worked on that's um, that's like in my studio. One day he was walking cool. and he said, hey, why don't you do something kind of on that Bruce Hornsby tip, man? And I said, oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah, I like that. All right. Let's okay. let's do something like that. Yeah. And at the same time, I think it was November and the, the elections were going on, you know, that were the, the congressional election where okay. the Democrats sort of swept the House sure, sure, sure. and the Senate. And there was like this feeling of like, wow, there's like a new – there's something new happening. Yeah, like right. there's a some light at the end of the con- yeah. tunnel. You know, where maybe things are turning around for our country and things are moving in the right direction. So it's sort of the combination of that, of stuff that was going on around us in terms of where that where that title came mm-hmm. from. And, and also the feeling of the song, you definitely, you know, it, ha- it has that kind of effect, that sort of Aaron Copeland-esque yeah, have, sort of hopeful feeling that and, it has. And then with the advent of, you know, you mentioned before, Jeremy Lubbock. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, what has who hasn't he worked with, you know? Well, that was the thing that, I, that really made it for me because I, I was, honestly, I was a little bit worried worried about being too close to that sort of um, Bruce Hornsby vibe mm-hmm. and I didn't right. want to yeah. – Bruce is like a friend of mine. I didn't want Bruce to call me up and, and, and you know, be mad or anything. And when Jeremy <laughs> put his thing on it, right. that really did it transform changed, it yes. and it kind of took it somewhere else completely. And, and uh, yeah, he's absolutely brilliant. He did something. He also did a, a beautiful string arrangement on um, – The Other Side of the Heart. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jet lag or something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, why I forgot that. I, I can play the song for you, but I can't think of the title. But anyway, uh, yeah. What he The thing that he did on that, he actually like changed the character of some of the chords and made it even more – Rich and more beautiful than than it was, you know. And that, that that what he did to that song was was really incredible. It was almost like like helping the writing in a way with yeah. with the stuff that he was adding to. You know, it. I, I went online and I started digging up a little bit on, on Jeremy Lubbock, mm-hmm. and I, I found it. This guy's a self taught pianist. He taught himself to play piano. Really? He did. He didn't go to music school or whatever. Wow. He basically just nurtured his own, you know, his ear and whatever. I mean, he's he was just obviously a natural uh, yeah. to do that. But and also that he studied to be an. Well, art. I would have never imagined that because really? because I, I worked with him recently, and he he has such a just his approach to to his his uh, the way he approaches arranging and chords and everything else. Well, this it, might add something it, more it, to it, this. It just seems so it, almost academic, like he's like, yeah. like a genius like professor or something Well, guess like what that. he did study in college? Architecture. Oh, wow, really? So, I mean, that might <laughs> yeah. uh, be uh, something to... Well, that's probably the way he puts his charts together is, is uh, he thinks of them from that standpoint, I guess. Yeah, just like that. Same at that. a desk with a T-square and then... <laughs> 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 Notates with a triangle, right? <laughs> Hey, Jeff, one of my favorite tracks on uh, your new album, He Had a Hat, is Surreptitious. And uh, Jeff's been kind enough to uh, bring the track in and let us take a listen to that. Here it is a sample of Jeff Lorber's Surreptitious from the album He Had a Hat. Thank you. 
sample of the track Surreptitious by Jeff Lorber of his new record, He Had a Hat. Hey, Jeff, thanks for letting us uh, take a listen to that and sample that here on Inside Music Cast. My pleasure. Absolutely. So we've already talked about the track uh, Grandma's Hands mm-hmm. uh, and um, and The Other Side of the Heart, which uh, features Grammy-nominated, of course, uh, uh, Eric uh, Benet. But for uh, this new album, um, He Had a Hat, mm-hmm. in working with Bobby Columbi, mm-hmm. Obviously, he was a major creative force in where you were going to be going with this. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And uh, is that – was he instrumental then in such – as Rick said at the very beginning of the interview, the variety of music and feels and vibe that this album portrays? Well, well, here's another thing that that he did, which which is interesting. I mean, the way I always – see, I mean, I'm I'm a very strong – presence in the studio as a writer i mean if you just sort of let let me go i'll just kind of do my thing if you just leave me alone i'll probably write the same kind of stuff all the time it'll be kind of funky melodic (laughs) stuff and he basically didn't allow me to do pretty much any of that the thing that's that's uh, the surprising is even though he's a drummer he doesn't have any interest in rhythm he's only interested in 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 harmony and and melody like as far as he's concerned, like oh, drumming, like I, I, you know, I, anybody can do that. That's easy, you know. Like whip a groove together. Yeah. So, you know, normally to me, it's about groove. I start with groove, right, and then I build on a groove. Like for him, he didn't want to have any anything like that. Did that surprise you at the beginning? Um, completely. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so for him, it was you know, if I'd come in with some kind of groove and the thing was groove based, he just didn't want to, he didn't want to work on that. He wanted to work on something that was. Um, that was harmonically or, or it was just something musically really unusual and interesting in some way. So I think that's why the whole record sort of became more eclectic and less, you know, there, there's very few things that have the sort of traditional Jeff Lorber funky groove on it. Yeah. And, I, and I was glad to do that because, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in growing and developing. And Bobby's a guy who I t- totally respect. I mean, that's why I hired him. And he, he's had tremendous success f- forever. I mean, it's not it's not just that he's had success, but he's had records that have changed music. Right. You know, Blood, Sweat and Tears changed music. Jocko sure changed music. Um, I think the Chris Bode records change music. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the kind of guy he is. He makes records that take, you know, modern popular music to a new place that it hasn't been before. So I was I was like sort of, you know, honored and delighted that I had a chance to work of somebody with that caliber. And I definitely wanted to sort of let, you know, if I'm hiring him to produce my record, I'm going to definitely let him do his thing. And I'm going to take the thing where he wants it to go rather than. You know, I mean, I've already made, I guess this is my 17th album. Yeah. So I've had lots of chances to do right. my funky Jeff Lorber sure. funky music. So it was nice to kind of do something new. Neat. You know, I noticed that you're credited with recording and mixing, you know, much of your, your new record. And is the technical side of creating a new record something you enjoy as, as much as the actual performance? I, I guess ideally it might be nice to actually hire an engineer to come in and record stuff. But I mean, just from a budget standpoint... Um, it doesn't really make sense. And, and it's pretty easy to just plug stuff in and get a nice clean signal path and mm-hmm. press record. You don't have to be a real genius to do that. Um, I mean, I do hire engineers to come in and record drums. That's sort of an art form. And mm-hmm. I, and I, I can sort of do it, I guess, if I had to, but I prefer to, um, you know, that's a, that's a complicated, uh, task of, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
phase relationships right. and getting the right overhead mm-hmm. sound and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but when it comes to just simple recording, recording keyboards or recording a bass or you know, I, I feel very uh, comfortable. What about the mixing side, though? I yeah, mean- the mixing. Well, what happened? The reason why I, I, I got mixing credit on this record, there were two songs that I mixed. One of them was just very, very simple. There was only like. You know, six instruments in the track or something. Right. There was okay. like nothing to it. My rough mix sounded great. It's like, hey, let's just use that. It, it sounds, it, it sounds great. No problem. Yeah. The other one was a song that Paul Brown mixed three times, and he sort of refused to mix it again. <laughs> <laughs> and um, now, why would he mix it three times? Well, you know, I think a lot of it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily about. It was funny because I was just listening to his mixes recently. And I, in, in some ways, I like his, his mixes a little bit better than what I did. I, I certainly tried to copy a lot of the relationships that he created in his mixes. But uh, part of it was – it was that song Surreptitious, which is like one, definitely sure. one of the most um, ambitious songs on the record. Mm-hmm, it has mm-hmm. – uh, w- one thing that's sort of tough about that song is it starts out with just a rhythm section. It's just like piano, bass, and drums. And then like you know, five – a couple minutes later, it's all the – you know, it's a – Two different horn sections and like guitar oh, and yeah, it gets like a bunch of different like mel- melody instruments. So um, so it goes from something very you know small to something much bigger. Right. But anyway, we, we were making musical choices too. In the process of mixing it, we were changing things about like what was playing in different sections. We may have even changed the form a little bit. So that was part of the reason why he had to mix it three times. But he's the kind of guy, he's got a little bit of ADD and he doesn't like to spend mm-hmm. a lot of time on stuff. And he definitely, <laughs> like if, mixing something three times, that's probably a, a record for him. Usually he won't even go that far. But so that's how I ended up mixing it was because he sort of refused to mix it anymore and I wanted to change something. He had something. enough. Enough, let's move yeah. on. Well, uh, um, on the way to the studio, uh, I had told you that I was reading the liner notes on your the new album and that I noticed that uh, there was a, a horn section that was now renamed the Lair Studio yeah, Horn Section. Right. Tell us a story that uh, just – if you could repeat again. I mean tell us that uh, – the story – we're talking about rooms right, and the Capitol right. Room. You know? Yeah. Well, we were talking about um, the Capitol <laughs> Studio is yeah. one of the great or maybe the greatest studio right. or certainly one of them uh, on the planet. I mean it's just so inspiring. It just has a wonderful acoustical environment. It has a very famous echo chamber that's under the parking lot there mm. that's been – used on a, on a lot of records that have recorded there, of course, the Beatles and uh, Frank Sinatra and, uh, you know, many, many yeah, people everyone, have recorded sure. at, at Capitol. But anyway, so the story was that, that I hired Tom Scott to do some arranging and we, we did have a little bit of a, you know, not the greatest budget on this record. And when you hire five horn players, it can get pretty expensive. And so we, I guess Tom was able to get a deal from these guys where they didn't quite charge us the, you know, their triple scale rates that they normally charge, you know, the, a lot of the big projects. We kind of got them for some kind of reduced rate. And, we, and, and it turned out that we could have recorded them at Capitol. But um, because Bobby had been doing a lot of work there and, and we knew the studio was – And it um, wasn't booked. It, it wasn't it, booked. It was, it was they, open. They would have basically given it to him practically for free for right. like 100 bucks or something <laughs> to record these horns <laughs> okay. at Capitol. But we didn't want to do that because we, we, we felt bad about the idea that we're going to take these eight – horn players that are giving us this sort of bargain basement deal on their services and we're going to bring them into the best studio in town to record them. They're going to say, well, like, holy cow. Yeah, if, if they can afford this, they can afford to pay us a couple more bucks. So so we recorded them at the Lair Studio, which is kind of a budget place that's, uh, you know, a little, little studio that's uh, on Robertson near near the 10. And um, 
So yes, yeah, so that, that was the story of the the Lair Studio horn section. And obviously they renamed the, the album. I, I, when I when I first read that, I I'm like I started giggling. I'm like Gary Grant's part of the Laird Studio horn section. That's 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 hilarious. You know, I thought that was really funny. So <laughs> anyway, you know, you enlisted three really amazing drummers. You know, for this for this uh-huh. album, and Dave Weckl, Vinnie Caliuta, and, and Abe Labrador Jr. And what you know, initially, what were you looking for? Uh, you know, from each of these drummers, and was there something in particular you were you yeah, were trying to find cool. with these guys? Um, well, as far as Dave goes, um, you know, I mentioned that I've, I've been doing some touring with Brian Broberg, and that's how that's how I met Dave. Dave uh, Brian had hired both Dave and myself to go to Japan, and we played at the Blue Note there. And I, you know, I wasn't really that familiar with Dave. I mean, I had heard him play with Chick, and but you know, actually getting to know him. And playing with him in the context of Brian's music, I sort of like heard a whole other side to his playing. And I could tell that he was just, you know, super musical and he could probably play great on any kind of music. And in fact, I've used him on a couple um, projects that I've worked on since then, in fact. But uh, so I was really delighted to have the chance to have him play on some of some of the music and, um, you know, the song Surreptitious and also the song uh, Superfusion Unit, which, by the way, the title of, of that song, that's just kind of a joke, because when we arrived in Japan, we found out they were calling us the Superfusion Unit, like Superfusion Unit. Who's that? Like, oh, that's us. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, so it was great to have a chance to work with Dave, uh, Abel Boreal. Guy that I you know I love his playing, very versatile, um, and I've been trying to work with him for years, and uh, we were lucky to get him on it. And then Vinny, basically, Vinny was sort of like a last minute thing where we had some real jazzy stuff, and we we only you know he's super versatile too; he can play anything. But we basically hired him to play uh, on the songs that were the most jazzy, the bebop songs and and the stuff um, that was a little more Elvin Jones esque. Yeah. Well, they did a great job. Um, I have a question for our musicians that are in the audience. Okay. And, um, you know, I, I personally grew up playing – I'm a keyboard player. So I grew up, you know, playing with, of course, the, your stage rows, DXs, right. emulators, profits, and that kind of stuff. Sure. So motifs. Me too. But um, <laughs> uh, obviously. But – in 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 those day, in the early days, as compared to now, how are you producing your music? Are you using software, or are you still? I noticed that one of the pictures on on a new photo session shows basically the keyboards behind you. Yeah. How how are you mixing in technology of software versus actual or whatever? What's what what do you use as your as your tools? Yeah, my I'm I'm still pretty old school. I mean, I use Pro Tools and I use the latest version of it. But when I write, um, I, I basically print everything. Uh, I, I have Logic and Pro Tools hooked up together. I'll come up with some kind of beat, which will be in Stylus, or maybe I'll take a loop from somewhere, or maybe right. I'll just grab like a couple of bars of something. Or you know, sometimes I'll even use my motif and use the drums out of sure. that. I kind of like the drums out of that, or mm-hmm. out of my. I have an old um, JX50, or uh, you know, it's not that old, but it's got some kind of drums card in it that sounds very realistic that I like. But anyway, I'll just take some drums. I'll just create some drums out of somewhere. And then as far as bass, I just kind of do it one one thing at a time usually. I, and bass, I use my Minimoog. I use Stylus. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'll actually – I have a bass and I'll actually play a little bit of bass really? and stuff myself. Uh, and and then I'll play my Rhodes or I'll play a Motif Rhodes and, and I have a piano. I got a Wurlitzer. So I just kind of do it. Yeah. I like hardware instruments or I like the real instruments. I play guitar a lot on stuff that I produce. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, you know, it doesn't always make it to the record, but I don't think I ended up playing any guitar on my album, unfortunately. But <laughs> I mean, I, I love, I'm, I'm a very passionate guitar player. I'm not that accomplished. You know, I can't really, I'm, I'm more of just a blues player. I kind of play simple, funky parts, but I absolutely adore playing the guitar and I love to rock out. I got a pedal board and I, there's a store in, in LA called True Tone Music and I love going down there and trying out all their pedals. Yeah, and, right. yeah. and, um, so, you know, so what I, what I lack in, in skill, I make up for in, in, in enthusiasm when it comes to the guitar because it's so much fun that's neat hey i want to touch a little on some of the uh your past projects and and collaborations and you know your albums west side stories and state of grace and midnight you know they they kind of established your foundation and demand for your composing and producing skills and and for you know for artists like michael franks and rick braun and joel albright and so many more but you know you know you were extremely busy during this time and and how did you go about choosing your projects around that time um you know, I just, the phone will ring, and I'll just, you know, especially if it's somebody like some of the people you just mentioned, yeah, who I'm, mm-hmm. who I I love their playing, and I like them personally. And mm-hmm. you know, when you when you work with somebody like Michael Franks or Gerald, I mean, the thing that's so great about that, besides the fact that they're fantastic musicians, is that it's very easy to communicate with them because kind of we all listen to the same stuff. We all yeah. kind of came yeah. up. Listening and enjoying a lot of like Gerald actually played in my band in the early '80s, like right after Kenny G left, and uh, so I've known him for 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 a real long time, Uh, and I've been a fan of his. I mean, ever since uh, you know that's his solo on "Forget Me Not." So I mean, I think that was probably one of the first things he ever did. But um, yeah, so it's really fun to work with those kind of guys. But yeah, I mean, it may sound like you know like my phone's ringing off the hook and I'm working <laughs> nonstop, but it's not. It's not necessarily yeah. like that. It's kind of like, like a lot of musicians. It's sort of feast and famine. Mm-hmm. You'll be kind of busy for a while, right. and uh, and then things will slow down. I'll tell you, I think the most the busiest era for me though really was. Um, was kind of like the end of the 80s into the early 90s because at that point I was really doing a tremendous amount of studio work in terms of remixing yeah, um, and also a lot of Japanese projects yeah. and a lot of R&B projects. There was this guy named Lul Silas who was, who was a um, A&R guy at MCA Records and he used to basically hire me for like every single thing they would put out. They would hire me and this guy Keith Cohen to sort of like work it over and put like additional production and, yeah. and whip it into shape no matter what it was. We, and, and it would either be sort of in a, in a uh, like dance remix kind of capacity. Sure. Usually when we, when we do the dance re- remixes, we would listen to the song and we would listen to it and see if it actually needed any additional production just from this, the way it was to begin right. with. Which would be used which, the way it was. Yeah. Which it often would. And then we do like sort of our version of the album version, but sort of, you know, Kick it up a little um, Exactly. Yeah. You know, like kicked up a notch or whatever. And then we do like the house four on the floor sure. remix. Yeah. We spend like two or three days doing it usually. That's cool. Um, so, yeah, that, that's when I was like unbelievably busy. Those were those were great days. But, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love making music. So, you know, basically, uh, if it's good music, I'm there I, and I'm right. enjoying – I'm having fun and I'm doing it. In 96, you took a trip with Dave Kaz and you went to Indonesia. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a songwriting symposium for Asian composers. And it led to a very interesting track on your uh, State of Grace album. Right. It's called uh, The Island of Temples. Right. Tell me the story of how that happened. That's very unique because I heard the cut a couple times and I just find it very I- interesting that with that style of, of injection of what I know you captured there, it still maintained a, a groove, you know? Right. Well, um, yeah, it just seemed like, like a natural thing to do to um, – we, you know, we were, we were over there. We were, we were in Bali actually for a few days, which mm-hmm. is where the gamelan sound comes from. Mm-hmm. 
it's funny because over there, it's it, like what kids are listening to, they're actually listening to American music. And they sort of look at that indigenous music, like the gamelan music. Yeah. It's just something for the tourists. I mean, it's kind of like the way we look at, <laughs> at um, like banjo, right. like Appalachian music. It's <laughs> like it's like just some kind of quaint little folk music. You know, right. they, it's not really what people are listening to over there. Right. But it has like an unbelievable sound to it. And those gamelans... You know, when you hit one, the harmonic structure of those sounds is is bizarre. It just it doesn't ring like anything you've ever heard before. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but that that was basically that seemed like sort of a natural thing to do at the time was to collaborate with these Indonesians and have them sort of come up with some of their melodies that they hear that's part of their culture and to put our little like funky groove behind it. And uh, that's basically what it is. There was another song very similar that I worked on that was called Tuva, hmm. where um, there was this gentleman uh, that did throat singing from Tuva, and oh, yeah. um, and he was this buddy of mine. Basically, was involved with help helping to bring him to America and set up a little concert tour. And um, somehow, I know, th- 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 this is quite funny because we sort of worked out a little a little uh, exchange where he came in and he kind of sang this thing, and and I and then he would like allowed me to take that and do whatever I wanted to it, which I ended up making a song and putting it on, on my album. Um, and then in exchange, he got to record an album at my studio, which basically consisted of just like turning on a mic okay. mm-hmm. and letting him record yeah. stuff for like an hour and putting it on a cassette. <laughs> I think I know who you're talking about because this – if it's the same person, it was the guy um, – Bela Flex uh, live at the Quick. Probably. Yeah. He, I mean he's, he's world famous. His name's Kongarol Ondo. Kongarol, yeah. 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 Interesting. He's, a, no, it, he's just a wonderful guy. It's he's incredible. very, very funny too. Yeah. But anyway, let me tell you about record dis- distribution in Tuva. Like what happens is you put stuff on a cassette. You go over there. They play it on the radio and everybody records it. <laughs> Off the radio on their cassettes. <laughs> so that's how you get your music, you know, distributed in tuba. Sort so of like Napster. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Except with no, no digital in it. I don't know. Called Tubester. <laughs> Tubester, you know, something like that. <laughs> hey, listen, I want to mention one thing. Out of going back to He Had a Hat, um, I must confess after listening to a lot of the cuts, you know, sometimes personal taste – makes you embrace a certain cut that you just can't let go of. Mm-hmm. Mine was the, the the title cut, He Had a Hat, yeah. because it was that intro right. that really got me the, when I finally figured that you were playing ahead of the beat, and it was still in four. Right. And I'm like, and then, of course, it goes in, and then you were pushing, me personally, you were pushing all my buttons. There was a little bit of Bob James. There was a little bit of Sample. There was a little bit of this, and I was I was like, re- listening to that track, and I was like, rem- reminiscing, this is so rich with a lot of history in this in this track and uh it, it was just a very neat track well, thank you real, real neat well the track. thing about that you know the the coda section that has the crazy dun, you know dun, cy- dun, cycle dun, of fourths yeah. um you know basically i was trying to come up with something that would be harder to play on than giant steps mm-hmm. and uh i mean because that's you know it's i, I don't know i th- like at the time that i did the album i couldn't really play on it i managed to sort of edit something together that sounded pretty good but now i, I actually can play yeah. on that thing and and we we do it live and it's and it's really fun like well, once, I played once, it over and over and over and over <laughs> until i finally got okay the count i'm like i see where he was going yeah, I'll, you know? I'll send you the music if you want uh, <laughs> later <That'd be> neat. <laughs>
Oh, hey, Jeff, you, you know, you've come a long way from the Jeff Lorber fusion and, you know, playing with Kenny G back then and in the mm-hmm. new album. And now you're doing, you know, well, now I guess it's been like seven years you've yeah. been, you know, doing the show on uh, Sirius right. and, um, you know, playing other artists' music for the masses. I mean, that's that's got to be a cool gig for you, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it, it kind of keeps me, you know, it keeps me plugged in. I listen to a lot, you know, whatever I'm playing, I actually do listen to it and I contribute to the programming of, of those channels a little bit. I mean, I'm just a fan of music. I'm a fan of all kinds of music, mm-hmm. and I'm, it's like having a paper route. It's just a little job <laughs> that's steady, it always, you know. And, uh, you know, but it's, it's good. It's a way for me to kind of promote myself a little bit and, and to uh, pl- play music of people that I, you know, that I think uh, people wouldn't normally hear. There's, there's this group out of L.A., and they're completely obscure. I don't know why, but they're called The Rebirth. Okay. And that's one of the bands that I play on my show, and I, I love what they're doing. It's it's really fresh. Are you choosing your own music for that, or is there a uh, or is there some sort of a playlist or format that they make you follow? It's sort of um, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I send them stuff all the time, and they they mostly play stuff that I've suggested to them and okayed. But they do mix stuff in that you know every once in a while they program stuff that like damn I'm playing why am I playing that you know. But. <laughs> Yeah, they had a big changeover at Sirius. I used to be on the um, the fusion station, and they switched me to the smooth jazz station, which means I had to kind of like chill things out a little bit and play a little bit more of the, the smooth jazz stuff. But they actually, when Mel Carmazon came in and took over Sirius, they actually fired, I think they fired everybody there except for Howard Stern or something like that. And, and you. Uh, <laughs> and you, right? I'm, I'm the only jazz <laughs> DJ left. They oh, don't really? have any oh, other jazz man. DJs. So oh. it's like that's the, like my three hours on Sunday is the only uh, hosted show that they have on that channel. So it's a uh, channel, what is that, channel 71? Channel 71, yeah. Very cool. Gee whiz, Jeff, time's gone by. Right. And thank you so much for being with us. We uh, we love what you're doing. Thank we you. always have. And and obviously this this new album, He Had a Hat, which is now available. Um if you want more information, you can go to jefflorber.com. Actually, it's lorber.com. Lorber, that's right. I Excuse think all the me. other Lorbers are that's mad right. at me for doing that. That's but, right. Um. Lorber. <laughs> Lorber.com, and I will plug it. That's one of the most wonderful musical sites that, that me and Rick have seen. Yeah, it's, 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 really it's beautiful. Yeah. And uh, thanks for being with us. I, I got to say, I was, I was a little disappointed that Rick wasn't related to uh, Screaming Lord Such. You know, when, <laughs> I, when I heard that. <laughs> That was our first email exchange, I think. <laughs> Gee, yeah, well. you know, he's got a T in his name, I think. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, on that happy note, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks it a lot, was, John. Uh, Jeff, thank you for coming okay, by Inside MusicCast, and uh, we'll see you next time. Great. I hope so. Special thanks to Jeff Lorber for joining us on this episode of Inside MusicCast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week. So be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com.